There's a statue of Jesus. In fact, I got a picture of this. It made the Time magazine in 1925. There's a statue of Jesus that commemorated peace between two countries, Argentina and Chile. And it was right around the turn of the century, and they, between, they, they had warring factions for years and years and years, and finally they, they erected this statue of Jesus. It's called Christ of the Andes, and it made Time magazine in 19, uh, I think it's 1925. But um, they decided to put this up in just a way to say, you know what, there's not going to be any more war between us. In fact, they even put an inscription on there in 1937, which says this in Spanish. It says, sooner shall these mountains crumble into dust than the Argentine, Argentines and Chileans break the peace sworn at the feet of Christ the Redeemer. Yeah, nice, huh? <clears throat> now here's the bad part. They put this statue up, and shortly after it was put up, uh, the Chileans realized something. Jesus looks at the Argentinians. <laughs> and they started to get a little bit mad about this. What's the deal here? Who, who thought this up? How can we get the backside of Jesus and the Argentinians get the other side? And there, and there was all, it almost got to be those things written in papers. and it was, It's almost like, oh my goodness, this is going to cause another war. Until one clever newspaper man from Chilean wrote this in an editorial. He wrote down, the people of Argentina need more watching over than the Chileans. <laughs> <laughs> now, it is just human nature. It is just human nature. Even when you're putting up a statue of our Lord to commemorate peace between nations, it is still our nature to get mad about something. You know, if this would have been a church, they'd argue about what color carpet. It would have been underneath the statue or something. I don't know. There is something about people that just makes conflict. If you have two people, you got three opinions. And you think, well, that changes when you become a Christian. That'll change. I got news for you. It doesn't change. In fact, sometimes it gets really, really ugly. In fact, some of the worst conflicts in the United States have been churches fighting with one another. We're going to look at a passage today that actually is kind of disturbing. It's a passage that one of the reasons I love the Bible, one of the reasons I think the Bible is true is because it doesn't make any, it asks for any forgiveness when it describes something that happened that isn't pretty. And you see a lot of that in the Bible. If you're honest with it, there's a lot of mess ups. And I think there's a mess up going on here. We're continuing on in our series called Church on Fire, which is a study of the book of Acts. And we're right now in Acts chapter 15. So if you want to open a Bible or grab that insert, that'll help you follow along where we're going. We're in Acts 15. We're going to finish up, we're going to finish up uh, Acts 15 today. And it's kind of a start of something new. Start in Acts 15, verse 36. We're going to read all the way to 41 eventually. We're just going to kind of go through this chunk at a time. It says, sometime later, now, just stop right there. Remember what happened? They had this huge blow up, another blow up, but this time I think it was a, a good argument in the sense that uh, do people need to become Jewish first before they become Christians if they aren't already, aren't already Jewish people? And the answer was no. You don't have to do that. But they took a whole chapter to go over this controversy in Acts chapter 15. Right towards the end of it now we are. After that controversy, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, 
Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So if you remember, you can flip this map here for a second. Uh, oh, that didn't come out real good, but you can kind of make sense of the blur there. That the first time, if you can see the green, they're up. I have a pointer. They're, they're, they're up there where it's a Syria and then Antioch, and they come down to that island, and then they go up into that area around Iconium, and then they come back down. So that's basically the thing. That's what they did the first trip. What we're starting right here is the second trip. Paul's second, what's traditionally called his missionary journey. You can see the other colors on that map. And he's going to start out. But he's first by saying, let's go back and check out how they're doing. And it's sometime later. We don't exactly know how much time later. They're going to, he's going to make a third journey later in the book of Acts. This journey is going to take us from Acts 15.36 all the way to 18.22. And then he's going to make a third journey. He's going to go back around. And then some people call it his fourth journey. But reality is, he just got arrested and is going from town to town as he's getting to Rome. So call it a journey if you want. It sounds to me like uh, he's just going to prison. But that's uh, the imprisonment. You know, it's not really a fourth journey. So anyway, they're on this, it's just starting this second journey. We'll be in this for a little while. So this, this second journey, the second missionary journey of Paul starts. How does it start? Look at Acts 15.37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So this thing starts with a difference of opinion. Barnabas says, uh, we're going to find out later that, uh, way later uh, in a passage we'll read, that they're actually related. So there's some bloodline going on here. Barnabas and it's his cousin, so he's younger, he's a young guy, and he wants to take him along. And Paul says, no, don't think so. This guy dissed us once, why would we want that again? Now, we need to meet John this morning. You maybe haven't really met him before. We kind of glossed over him. I just want to read a couple where he comes from. Acts chapter 12 says, uh, Barnabas and Saul, when this had dawned on him, or excuse me, Paul, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were gathered and were praying. That's the first mention of this guy named John or Mark. And then later it says in verse 25, that same chapter, where Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So in Acts chapter 12, they start to hang out together. And he's a younger guy, and so just kind of a prodigy, and he's helping them out. Then he gets to go with them. In Acts 13, we see where Paul and Barnabas are going. Pick it up in verse 2 there. It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they were sent off. In Acts 14, we see what happens. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at uh, Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the Lord, of the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. So he comes out on this first journey, but then something happens. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So if we're just reading Acts 14 like we were before, it just says he left them. Who knows why? Maybe he's got a dentist appointments in Jerusalem. I don't know why, but he leaves them. But Paul says, 
when they're having this debate about it, he says, oh, no, 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 no. He deserted us. He left us hanging. I don't want to take him. So you got these two big shots. They're, at this point in time, they are the main people in the book of Acts. you got Paul and you got Barnabas, and they have a difference of opinion. Now, if you didn't already peek at the rest of you, you'd think, how do they settle it? Well, they just, you know, make a nice cup of tea. They settle down and they... It's now what happens. Look at Acts 15, 39. Just read the first sentence. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Now that phrase, sharp disagreement, is way under-translated. Okay? In the, right before the time of Christ, a little bit before that, they translated the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, they translated it into Greek. Okay? And so the exact same uh, words that were in the New Testament would later form the New Testament were also used in the Old Testament. That same Greek word was used twice in the Old Testament. Let me read where they come from. Deuteronomy 29, 28. In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. Jeremiah 32, 17. I will surely gather them from all the lambs, lands where I banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. That's the word. I will bring them back to this place and let them live safely. you got to understand, when, when they use that word to describe what's happening with Barnabas and Saul, they were livid with each other. They were screaming at each other. This was not a pretty little difference of opinion. Barnabas and Saul are ticked with one another. There's only one other place in the whole New Testament where this word is used. And it gives a new a new little nuance on this verse. It's in, it's in Hebrews 10. You often quote this verse. You, you probably, if you, if, you're, if you know the Bible, you would know this verse. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And it continues on. Many of you maybe even have memorized this passage. Let us not give up meeting together as some of the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. In that phrase where it says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on. That's the phrase. Spur. Let me just re let me insert what happens here. And let us consider how we, even if it comes to sharp disagreement with one another, push them toward love and good deeds. Kind of gives a new twist to that verse, huh? So if your roommate's ticking you off, nail them! No, 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 no. But it is meaning in this land of Norwegians, of which I am one, spur means spur, you know? It means let them have it if necessary. Let us consider how we may really push them. Barnabas and Saul are at each other. They are screaming at each other. Now, you need to remember who these guys are because uh, uh, you hear the old phrase, opposites attract. There probably couldn't be a better case of opposites attracting than with Barnabas and Paul. 
Let's take a look at Barnabas. Just some passages we've already read about Barnabas. Okay? In Acts 4, the first time we meet Barnabas, it says, just to kind of give you the context, says there were, there were no needy, this is from Acts chapter 4, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Huh? This is the kind of guy you'd want on a long trip with you. Huh? Son of encouragement. Oh, you know, you just did that so well. You just, oh man, you rock. The way you guys sang today, you guys rock. Son of encouragement. What does he do? He sold a field and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. You, you get this picture of this guy who's got this huge heart. He just gives everything away. Oh, you walk into his house and he says, oh, that's a great painting. And he takes it off the wall and he hands it to you. Take it. Take it. That's Barnabas. In Acts chapter 9, it says, uh, Paul, Saul he's called here, it just got converted. He's now a follower of Christ. And it says, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. That's, that's Saul or Paul. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he's got no friends anymore. He was trying to, he was, you know, we're going to see Paul in just a second, but he was trying to kill the Christians, so he can't go there. And he can't go back to his Jewish friends because they're trying to kill him. This is a no-win situation. But his followers took him by night, lowered him basket through the wall. He came to Jerusalem. He tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. We don't have much of the New Testament if it wasn't for those two words in verse 27. But Barnabas. Paul is just a dot on the radar screen otherwise. And Barnabas says, you know what? I believe in this guy. He was an, a kind man. He was a bold man. It took courage to do that. He was an encourager. He was a coach. He was the kind of guy who saw in people something good and wanted to help them with it. He was a helper of people. Chapter 11, we see another aspect of him. Something happened. I'll just kind of shorten this just for time here. But uh, this, this, the, the, not just the Jewish people are believing, but the Gentile people, the non-Jewish people are also trusting in Christ. Pick it up in verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So he goes from Jerusalem, he goes up to Antioch up here. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus, Jerusalem, Antioch. Tarsus is over here. He goes all the way over to Tarsus, I lost my place. Uh, he's looking in Tarsus. And, uh, <laughs> and he found him. <clears throat> Brought him back to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. 
The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Just think about the history of these two guys. Barnabas saves Paul's life because perhaps even the Christians would say, you know what, maybe we should kill this guy because he might just be a spy. And he says, but Barnabas brings him there. And then he really kicks off Paul's whole aspect of being a, 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 a gospel preacher, a, a, a person who's a minister. He goes to Tarsus and brings him back to Antioch, and Antioch becomes Paul's home church. There's a huge amount of history with these two guys. But that's the heart of Barnabas. He just loves on people. You can see it here. He's just loving on John, Mark, whichever you want to call him. He just loves on the guy. We've got to take him. That's Barnabas. Paul. What kind of guy was Paul? Now, Paul is never called the son of encouragement. I love Paul. I just spent a week studying the first half of the book of Romans. I, I love this guy. But he ain't the guy. He ain't the guy who is going to say, great job. Let's just take a look at this kind of guy. First of all, look, before he becomes a Christian. Acts chapter 8, a couple of verses, 1 and 3. And Saul was there, remember his name was Saul, it got changed later on. And Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. So he's there, they're stoning this guy, and Paul's going, yeah, yeah. If you, if you come over the top of your head a little better, you'll have more velocity. He's helping him out, do it. Do it. And that day, I don't know where that came from, sorry. It's the only line in the movie that's funny. The rest of the movie's stupid. Uh, okay. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Skip down to verse 3. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. This is the kind of guy Saul was. I'm going to get you. Look at him, verse chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still, and it's one of my favorite kind of vivid word pictures in the, in, in the book of Acts, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. <sighs> breathing out. Isn't that a great phrase? He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. I'm done in Jerusalem. Give me more cities. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This guy is zealous, Right? This guy's a hardcore. Something happens on the road to Damascus. He meets Jesus. Gets his life turned upside down. But he doesn't lose that edge. Paul's got an edge, man. You don't believe me? Acts chapter 9. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, we just read this for Barnabas, the Jews uh, just conspired to kill him. Saul learned of the plan. They watched the gates. Followers took him, lowered in the basket. Barnabas, Barnabas took him and brought the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. This guy's got a death warrant on his life. He knows because he was one of them. So Saul stayed with them, moving about, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Paul is just like a bulldog who's got a, his teeth sunk in your hind end. And he just doesn't stop. Acts chapter 13, one of the places they go out, he has to confront someone, someone who's being naughty to him. And he doesn't turn to them and saying, excuse me, could you be quiet? 
That's not what he says. Acts 13, but Elmas, Elmas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed him and tried to turn the proconsul from faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at Elmas and said, you are a child of the devil. And an enemy of everything that is right. You are, so, you are full of all kinds of tricky, deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to go blind. And for a time you'll be unable to see the light of sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him. And he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Paul ain't Norwegian. <laughs> Norwegians say, oh, you know, if it's okay after dinner... Well, then you should stay for the evening because, you know, it's too cold tonight. If you'd kind of stop. Paul just says, you're a child of the devil. Acts 19, or excuse me, Acts 14. One of my favorite passages about Paul's tenaciousness. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. So he's just totally unconscious. He's just got you know, stone marks all over his head. He's laying out there. But after the disciples gathered around him, he got up. So the disciples gathered around. I don't know if it's a healing or just, you know, uh, who knows what, but he's, he's, he's around him. He's there. He stands. He says, he got up, and what does he do? And he went back into the city. <laughs> what? That's the bulldog that's got his teeth sunk into your hind end. I'm just going back, man. I'm going right there. Give me some more. Is that all you got? You ain't got game. Come on. <laughs> that's Paul. Acts 15. We just read this. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Now, I know it says... Paul and Barnabas. One guess who is more sharp disputing with them. <laughs> you see these two guys? They make a great team. They make a great team. But they're also polar opposites. They're different people. And what happens? They head their separate ways. They head their separate ways. It breaks my heart to even have to say that. I didn't write this, you know, but they head their separate ways, like the Beatles or Simon and Garfunkel. Sonny and Cher. Bert and Ernie. It wasn't reported. They got back together. It's, it's, all, it's all good. Look at... Second half of verse 39. Barnabas took Mark. You know what? I'm taking him. I'm taking him. I remember another young punk I took under my, my hands, brought him to the disciples. He turned out all right. I'm taking Mark. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Back to the island they went to first. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening their churches. If you look on the map, I don't have a map here, but he goes out to the island, Barnabas and John or Mark, and he goes on, the, on land and he goes up north and he goes and strengthens the churches. Now, who was right in this argument? 
The Bible does not tell us. The Bible does not. It just tells us that it happened. The book of Acts just tells you what happened. And I think, I think that they're, they wish it had a different outcome. But this is just the, the way it happened. So they describe it. It's an accurate historical account. It's not pretty. It's a sad day. The, deem, the dream team is broken up. Who is right? There are four possibilities, unless I did my logic wrong. There are four possibilities. First of all, Paul. Some scholars think Paul was, was right, so to speak. Two reasons why they think he was right. If you look in this passage right here, it says, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. That's all it says about him. Then it says, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. In other words, the church agreed with him and you should go. Eh, that might be reading into it. I don't know. The second reason would be is that Bar Barnabas, even though he's the guy who kind of made Paul, Paul was the apostle. And Barnabas should have just said, okay, we won't take him. So on those two things, possibly, possibly Paul was right. Second possibility was Barnabas was right. What is Barnabas's best case? Well, history is Barnabas's best case. If you look what Paul himself, 10 years later, writes about Mark. He says this in three different passages. Colossians 4, he says, <clears throat> My fellow prisoner Ar Aristarchus sends you greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes, welcome him. In other words, he's with him now. Uh, and Philemon, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greeting, as do, so do Mark and all these other guys, fellow workers. But the best one is in 2 Timothy, his last letter of his life. Paul's last letter in his life. And he writes this, do your best. He's writing to Timothy, so he says, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus del Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Tradition tells us, now Mark didn't sign it, but tradition tells us, history tells us that Mark, this Mark, wrote the Gospel of Mark. From, from listening to Peter, got all the information from Peter, and so Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. So maybe Barnabas was right in believing in this guy. The other possibility is they were both right. This is the postmodern idea. <clears throat> that this was just God's plan for the church, and he kinda, the only way he could do it is get these two brothers to disagree. And the, other, the fourth option is that neither of them were right. They both just got pig-headed. I think there's a little bit of that going on here. I don't really know who is right. Now, is there any possible? That's the last we're going to see of Barnabas. That's the last we're going to hear about him in the book of Acts. Is there any possibility that Barnabas and Paul ever reconciled? There's only a hint. I found a, a verse very obscure. So hang with me. I think, it, I think it works. But if it doesn't, you can hit me at the door. Was there any possibility? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is writing about something totally different. He's talking about money. But he asks this. He says, or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? I know, you're saying, what does that have to do with anything? Hang with me. 
Now, is there any way possible that, Maddie, you could go back to the map? Do you have any way to do that? Because I, I forgot to insert it here. Go back to the Mr. Map. <clears throat> okay, keep going. Yeah. Oh, oh, there we go. Okay, now, the first journey of Paul, the first journey of Paul and Barnabas is the green line. It only stays around on the, on the extreme right-hand side of the map. Corinth is in Greece. Greece, you see the Italy there, the boot thing? It's just one continent over, one, I don't know, land mass over. So Corinth is over there. They never were there. Barnabas and Paul weren't there together. That wasn't on their first journey. Therefore, Paul had never been there. Therefore, he, to write to the Corinthians would be after he and Barnabas had had this fight. So for him to say, or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living, I think he's indicating that Barnabas has a legitimate, legitimate ministry in what he's doing. I don't know if they ever, you know, dropped an email to each other or whatever. I have no idea. I hope that they did, but I don't know if they ever do. What's the application out of all this? I have a phrase that I like to use, especially if you're in a situation, well, you are, because you're human, and that you're going to have conflict. You are going to have conflict. And here you have two guys that love the Lord with all their hearts, and just because of their spiritual strengths and spiritual gifts being so radically different, they came into sharp disagreement with one another. The phrase that I like to say is you're only as good as the your relationship is only as good as the conflict you make it through. You are going to have conflict. I'm seeing all the wives in the room going, uh-huh. <laughs> if you're going to get married, you know. You're going to have conflict. If you get in a roommate situation, you're going to have conflict. If you're in a friendship or you don't have conflict, you don't know each other really well. It's going to happen. Now, my hope is not that you come into sharp disagreement and part ways. That's not my hope. And I don't, that's the only place in the Bible that I can see where that was the solution they came up with. Usually, usually it's where they come to a point where they spur one another on and it leads them even towards reconciliation towards one another. That's my hope this morning. But you have to, we have to look at it the way it was. In this case, it, it wasn't that way. But for an application, you're only as good as the conflict you go through. If you think you're going through conflict with someone, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong. Maybe it's just that they're different. Let's pray together. God, I love the fact that you use all things, even our strengths, which when pushed to an extreme are our weaknesses, and you use even those to bring about great things. I know that you used Paul, and I know that you used Barnabas. Father, I pray for people in this room right now that are going through a time where they're at conflict. Even as I speak these words, they're in inner turmoil because there's an unresolved conflict that they're dealing with. And God, I pray I pray for them, Lord God, that, that you would allow reconciliation to happen, the same kind of reconciliation that we have through you, Jesus. So I pray for that, God, that we'd be first and foremost people who look for that common ground. We'd be humble people. 
God, I just pray that you would make us be people who first and foremost want to love you, first and foremost want to seek the good of your kingdom. And Lord, as that happens, we can, get, we can let some of the other things go. So Father, if there's things we're holding on to this morning and, and the fact that I was right or they're right, or who cares? Wouldn't it be better to be wronged and still have that relationship? So I pray for that, Father. I pray for grace in our relationships with one another. God, that it would not come to these kinds of blows as it did with Paul and Barnabas. We just ask, Lord God, your favor upon us individually and as a church. And just praise you, Father, that you've allowed us to have eight plus years of history without any major sharp disputes. That's by your spirit, because on our own, we'd be arguing about which side the statue faces toward. So God, just protect us individually and protect us as a church from that. We pray in Jesus' name.